G'day. I became a fully, fully mature person, able to understand and appreciate and know all that there was to know about the world and the people in it uh, when I was 14. And um, with real clarity, at this point of enlightenment, the thing that began to really trouble me was the church. Um, I was a Christian, but I was a, a vaguely cynical youth and quick to see uh, hypocrisy and inconsistency in people. Uh, totally blind to seeing it in myself, but I could see it. That there were these people that for years, my whole life, I'd considered to be faultless and lovely and perfect. They actually weren't. And these were the ones in the church. And they were actually active in the church, and even some of them leading the church. How could they act one way in the church and then another way outside it? It just felt really fake. And I wanted to know what a true worshiper looked like. I had ideas and I had opinions, but once all the, the empty words and the singing and the long prayers and the sermons were done, what, what does true worship look like? And now look at me. Um, it's several years later from then, and here I am, a faulty, inconsistent human um, at the pulpit with a bunch of words to tell you. Is it vanity? Is it all just for vanity, or is there something to this? Is there something in it? Is there a meaningful way to do this? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're gathered here in your house, as your house. Help us to listen to your word, to wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're into Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and all, all the way through Ecclesiastes up to now, we have the wise teacher, and he has been examining and trying things out, and I tried this thing. Vanity. I tried this other thing, it's vanity. I tried another thing, it's vanity, 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 vanity. And when we get to chapter five, um, it changes a little bit. Um, at last, the wise teacher starts offering us some proverbs. This is the proverb life that Phil Oster was talking about last week. Do this thing and good stuff will come out of it. Don't do that bad thing and you'll avoid the evil stuff. The teacher, he shifts proverbial gears into a proverbial gear. Um, and his focus is humans as worshippers, and he's brutal. Like, he's even more brutal than 14-year-old me. So with these verses, the teacher says, your focus is off. You're rash. You're hasty. You don't even realize you're doing evil. You're daydreaming. You're making vows, and you're not keeping them. You're making God angry with your voice. And then he lands on that familiar word there, vanity. Verse 4 says, he has no pleasure in fools. That's sobering. Um, one of my favorite theologians, Derek Kidner, he said this about that verse. This is as quietly crushing a remark as any in the book. They're sober warnings, right? 
and we need to feel the weight of them. But now, I want you to imagine that this passage, this little scrap of scripture, is all you had. All you had to know about God was just this little brief scrap of scripture. This is some of the stuff that you would know as you look into it. Verse one, we can approach God. That's pretty cool, right? We can listen to the God of heaven, still in verse one. Verse two, we can speak to God. Verse four, that God may actually find some pleasure in us. Isn't that amazing? And then down here in verse seven, that God is the one you must fear. This is a good thing because we fear all kinds of things, but God is the one that we must fear. This simplifies life greatly when there's only one we need to worry about. There are so many blessings in this passage. It's going to hammer us, but it's also going to bless us, all right? You ready for this? So holding on to those blessings, keeping them in mind, um, let's take an honest look at who we are as a church and how we do the, the church. This is uh, a church-going checkup, all right? Verse 1, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. What does it mean to guard your steps? Like um, walk, walk carefully. Make sure that no one distracts you and takes you off course while you're on your way to the house of God. That's good. Don't stomp on other people as you come into the house of God. Or guard your steps because you are approaching God. Holy, sacred ground. There's this crazy moment in, in the middle of Leviticus. I was reading it just recently and it just shocked me again what happens. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible, Exodus, God's people have gone out into the wilderness, saved by God, and being formed into this people. And in Leviticus, God says, this is how I want you to approach me. And this is how I want you to remember and celebrate and practice my holiness. Sacrifices like this. This is how you make um, this is how you make the oil, and this is how you make the incense, and these are the particular ways I want you to come to me and remember I'm holy. And then he sets up Aaron's sons as this priesthood who will do all these things on behalf of the people and bring them into the presence of God. And very, very, very specific. And then you get to chapter ten and Two of Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they burn the wrong kind of fire in the presence of God. And then they're burned up and destroyed by God in a moment. And they, whoa. Aaron's had four sons, and they're meant to be the, the special ones who are helping people to come into the presence of God, and God has just torched two of them. Guard your steps. The Lord is serious about his holiness and about us recognizing it. So we need to guard our steps when we approach his house. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know that they're doing evil. This isn't a club 
or some Sunday morning exercise that we come to. This, we are assembling as the body of Christ. This is a sacred moment. Guard your steps and be ready to listen. Guard your steps, but also guard your mouth. Verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. We've sung three songs so far this morning. Do you remember what they were about? I mean, we had Carol helpfully reminding us to focus on the words, and that's a helpful thing, but sometimes I find it's, it's the same kind of thing that happens where you're pulling into your driveway late at night, turn off the key, and you have no recollection of the whole drive. Anyone had that? Yeah? It's kind of frightening, right? And we do the same thing here. Three songs in, what? Have we been rash with our mouth? Have we been hasty with our hearts to utter a word before God? Maybe. I think there is a a small and redeemable value in uh, singing worship uh, songs on autopilot. Small, redeemable value. Um, Because the words words go in, even if they don't go up. And I found myself during the week that these words spring back to mind. And we have these opportunities through the week to worship God with these songs that we're singing now because God gets them in. (laughs) And hopefully then we don't worship on autopilot. Um, There's a trap here that we think, uh, I need to worship just right. I need to be focused on every single word um, so that God will accept me. It's not about that. But there should be a connection between our mouth and our heart as we speak. Our words um, must come from the heart and thoughtfully, slowly. And when we do that, the words do go up. And the teacher reminds us to have the right perspective. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Realize your place. And this is not to say that God is distant. Um, he is in heaven, we're on earth, but he fills everything. Um, you see, the creatures around the throne of God, they, they realized their place, and they had perspective before the almighty God, and they just say, holy, holy, holy. God has given us the right to worship him. So let's use our words well, hey? Verse 4, guard your steps, watch your mouth, be careful with vows. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you shouldn't vow than that you should vow and not pay. Why do we make vows We make vows to God, right? But why do we make vows to God? We're thinking about it. Like sometimes we do it to to make a deal. Like, God, if I will do this thing, 
And if I do this thing, God, please, please make mum better. Um, We make vows to protect ourselves from sin, to kind of put a fence around ourselves, to block block us in. Um, So me, as a less confident 20-something than I was at 14, I was talking to my friend Darren, and I said, Darren, I just vowed to God that I will not kiss a girl until I marry her. And Darren's like, really? That seems pretty extreme. And I said, well, I, I just can't trust myself. And Darren is just looking at me, he's like, I don't know how wise that is. Sometimes we make vows to reassure God, like, God, I swear, I swear, I know, yes, but I swear this time, this time, I'm going to do it right. And there are flaws in, in all of those kind of vows to God, but there is another really good reason that we make vows, and I have witnessed this reason on this stage, standing about here, is... We make vows out of pure devotion, like a bride saying, I do. It's a vow, and it's a vow that is made with a great deal of thought, right? Not hasty. And it's a vow made with much reflection on the love for the one we're vowing to. It's a vow that we want to keep. And it's not a vow of negotiating or bargaining. It's not a vow that's made to prove our love. It's made to celebrate our love and encourage this love to grow and hold on to it. That is a good vow. And the teacher's not saying don't make vows. He's just saying don't make hasty ones. You can't pay. Why should God be angry at your words? And without Christ, that's all we have. We have the wrath of God stored up against us because of our rash words and our hasty vows. So what should we do? In verse 7 it says, For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Fear God. I read it this week. The fear of the Lord should be fire in the bones. It's felt, trembling, awe-filled and reverent, visceral. But it's also a fear that drives out all other fears. It's a fear filled with relief. Um, I like to think of it like a lamb lying down with a lion. And this feeling a good lion, a lion that is protecting, and this feeling of safety and relief, and just that hairs down the back of the neck kind of feeling as the hungry hyenas retreat because there is this huge lion standing over you to protect you. There is one to fear. And so here is another proverb for Steve Early. He who has a massive lion watching over him has no quarrel with the hyena. (laughs) That one came accidentally. Fear God, 
Safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Pastor Phil Riken ponders, when we compare the holiness of God with the inadequate unholiness of our worship, it's a wonder that any of us are still alive. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. We all stumble. We've all stuffed up, right? Perfect man. If only there was one. There is one. <laughs> Jesus Christ, perfect in everything he did. Jesus Christ, perfect in every word he spoke. And this is the startling truth about worship, is that God knows how hopeless and hasty we are, and so he stepped in and he gave us Jesus Christ's perfect worship. Jesus Christ is our great high priest who offered his life for us and translated his perfect worship to cover our failed worship. Hebrews 10:14 says, "For by a single offering he Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified." How amazing, right? Our broken worship and he gives us perfect worship to offer. And not only that, God helps us to worship well now. I love this. Romans, Romans 8, 26. All of Romans 8. But Romans 8, 26 says this. As we struggle with our hasty words and just... Likewise, Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, for our words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. <laughs> God knows our worship is faulty and weak and distracted and daydreamy and unrealistic. And so he stepped in to fix it. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ took the judgment for every rash word and more, and now we can confidently draw near to God, not guarding our steps for, for the terror of being struck down as we draw near to God, not wheeling and dealing with God, not busting our guts to try and prove ourselves to God, but just resting in Jesus' perfect vow to us, his bride. We're imperfect, but we are a redeemed community. <laughs> so with honest humility, knowing that we are on earth and God is in heaven, we come in reverent fear, knowing that Christ has bridged the gap. We're broken worshipers, worshiping God brokenly, and then God does something beautiful with it. So, to any cynical youths like me, 
like I was. Any cynical adults wondering, why do we do this? And just picking all the holes in it. Take a closer look at what happens here in this place. Because it's, it's miraculous. It's extraordinary what God does. And carrying on with that extraordinary thing, we're going to finish with communion, which is Jesus' love feast for those who trust in him.